Hello, I'm Bruce Tolgan, author of The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, just published by Harvard Business Review Press. And this is The Indispensables, a podcast featuring conversations with real go-to people who stand the test of time in the real world of work. What makes them tick? My guest today is Dr. Lisa Wolf, one of my oldest and closest friends. She's going to talk about the challenges of leading in the world of emergency rooms, especially during the COVID-19 crisis. Learn about triage and the power of making decisions with limited resources. Welcome, Dr. Lisa Adams Wolf. Welcome to the Indispensables. I have to, for full disclosure, I have to explain that Lisa and I uh, went to Amherst College together. Lisa uh, is a year, was a year ahead of me. And um, Lisa is, I will read the official transcript. She has almost 20 years experience as a nursing researcher, educator, manager, and clinician. And uh, Lisa, am I correct that your PhD is in nursing? Mm -hmm. Her area of research interest and expertise is the intersection of moral and clinical decision-making and the effects of workplace culture on clinical decision-making. Lisa maintains a clinical practice in a local emergency department as a staff nurse. She teaches at local universities. She's the director of emergency nursing research for the Emergency Nursing Association, and she makes friends all over the world. Uh, welcome from Hadley, Massachusetts, Dr. Lisa Wolf. Hey, thanks. Um, I also want to, uh, for those who have not read my new book, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, uh, Lisa is the star of chapter two. Uh, I, I wrote about Lisa because what I was trying to get across in that chapter, the peculiar mathematics of real influence, I was trying to get across a certain spirit of integrity. Uh, I've known Lisa a long time. It's been a really long time. Uh, and, and she's always been a hard worker. Of course, you're not going to be an indispensable go-to person if you're not a hard worker. Uh, she's always been good at whatever she does, and she is a noted expert in her areas. But of course, you're going to be good at what you do if you're going to be an indispensable go-to person. The reason I wrote about you, Lisa, uh, is because there's something about the way you conduct yourself and the way you deal with people and the way you look at your work that it just has always rung deep with integrity. Uh, And it's always been one of the things I've admired about you. And uh, the work you do is so important because the lives of human beings are, are in jeopardy and on the line when you're doing your work or when the people whom you teach are doing their work. So um, that's, that's, that's why I wrote about you and that's why I wanted to have you as one of the first guests on the podcast to introduce you to the world in, in real life, as it were, because some people think, you know, uh, how could she be real? I'm shorter than I sound. So. <laughs> well, it's not an accident that the logo here is uh, wearing a cape. And I believe I describe you 
in, in the opening of the book as uh, to hear your colleagues talk about you, one would think you were wearing a cape and might have x-ray vision and could fly. So do, will you tell uh, the, the, the audience a little bit about your work from your perspective? So I, I work in sort of a triangle. So for me, my work is, it, what's critical is research, which informs education, which informs practice, which informs research. So um, having kind of a, a place in all three of those areas allows me not just to, to see how one influences the other, but to directly look at, look at intersection and overlap between the education of nurses, their practice, how that practice um, is integrated with other areas of practice and other areas really of, of, of society, right? So when you think about teaching nurses, you're not just teaching them about like this goes there, right? Or this blood pressure means this. It, it, what's, what's critical is to look at all the research that informs how we process clinical information about people, right? And how that there's almost an anthropological ethnographic um, understanding of how you perceive people in general, like as a person in their environment, how that affects how you perceive their presentation in the medical area. And so to help students sort of recognize and unpack that, you're not just teaching them be, to be better clinicians, hopefully you're teaching them to be better people. And so in a very high stakes profession like nursing, even when you're teaching, like that's the, that's the key thing, whether I'm doing research or talking in a meeting or talking to students, it's like the stakes here are human lives and human um, dignity. And so how do we set up our practice to foster that, to, to encourage human flourishing? So, um, because it's interesting that you describe it as a triangle, and of course you have a triangle of the pyramid over your shoulder, which is a nice metaphor. Be, because of course research, your research is all learning from human beings. And then you take what you learn um, in the research and try to use it to inform best practices of clinicians, right? And then you're also preparing new young, or maybe not always young, but new nurses to go out. And, uh, and then the nexus of all this is human beings who are in an emergency medical situation. How, how does the vulnerability of the patient inform your philosophy of, of the work? Yeah, it's kind of interesting as, um, so I went to all three of my nursing programs were centered in Catholic institutions. The focus from the very beginning for my very first degree was very much on the dignity and wholeness of every patient and the social contract that you engage in when you take on work in nursing or medicine or any other thing that directs, deals directly with people in crisis. And so it was considered um, a vocation in, in the sense of a calling, right? So you are called to serve and you are called to make it better. And so all the things that I have tried to do in my career, in my practice, is really centered on engaging with people um, where they are at probably the worst time in their lives and bringing all of my experience and expertise to bear on that particular problem. So, so every patient deserves my full effort. And that's what I teach my students. And that's what I try to put forward. 
Yeah, and you mentioned the high stakes, and you're not just treating patients in those cases, but you have other medical professionals with whom you are trying to collaborate and coordinate delivering care. How, how do you uh, balance leading those medical professionals in the midst of this crisis environment? Um, it's got to be patient focused, right? So everything has to be for the good of the patient or patients, right? So uh, especially in an emergency department, the the goal, like in a good environment, a good uh, clinical working environment, that's everybody's goal. How do we make this better for the patient? And so it's not so much leading or directing, it's just reminding people of that. And people tend to, you know, uh, if there's stress or there's discord and they say, okay, come on, let's focus on the patient, then everybody's like, oh, okay, all right, we're good to go. In areas where there can be you know, hierarchical conflicts, right? Or um, not great relationships between providers. Like those are just not good practice environments because people get caught up in their own stuff, right? And they forget about the patient. They're, they're too worried about being right or being told what to do or whatever. And so when you reorient and reframe onto the patient, then people tend to kind of remember what they're there for. Yeah, how, how do you deal with that? If you're in a situation where, uh, you're dealing with somebody who, you know, outranks you, um, and and yet you are very confident in your judgment, and you're in conflict with that person. You know, it seems like in a less urgent environment, there's a different set of tactics for working that out than if you're disagreeing with somebody and there's an urgent medical situation at stake? Well, you know, I think it depends. I, I haven't run into that in a while. Um, I think because I just scare people when I walk into a room. So, um, uh, I mean, I've got 20 years of experience. I know how to talk to people to get things done. And I know what data points I need to present to sort of get my point across. So, when, depending on the environment, if a nurse goes to, say, a physician and says, look, something's wrong with this patient, you need to come and see. If the physician doesn't know them, they're going to be like, yeah, 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 whatever. But with enough practice, you're like, okay, this is what I see. This is what the patient was like when I came on. This is what's changed. This is what I've tried. This is what I think's going on. I need an extra set of eyes. You know, you do that once or twice. And then the next time you say, I need you to come in. They're like, okay, I'm there because they trust you. Like, so it's all about building this clinical trust. There's, you know, at this point, uh, I think part of it is having gone to school and the vast majority of my college classmates are surgeons. So I, I'm not intimidated by physicians because I knew them when they were throwing up in the bushes behind Tyler, you know? So, <laughs> you mean you know, you, know, you know they're human beings too? Uh, they're human beings, right? And it doesn't mean that they've had, they've had different training than I have, but they're not better human beings than I am and they don't innately know more than I know. So to have the confidence to say, Okay, so I'm missing, I'm missing something here. Why don't you explain to me why your approach is better than mine, right? So if you set it up more as an information exchange rather than a confrontation, you're much more successful. But, you know, if you got to drop the hammer to protect the patient, you drop the hammer. So you've said a, a bunch of things that I want to uh, just catalog here. Because one thing you said is when you walk into the room, they're afraid of you. 
I think maybe when you walk into the room, they're afraid if they disagree with you because they have a sense that there's a decent chance that they're going to turn out to be wrong. It's possible. Um, it's so highly possible. If they're not afraid you're going to hit them, right? No, 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 no. They might be afraid you're going to scold them. But, but, but I think probably when you say they're afraid, um, what I hear is that you have a reputation for being right. Yeah. And so what they're afraid of is if they disagree with you, they're afraid they're going to turn out to be wrong. And, it's entirely possible. Yeah. Yeah. And I think having a track record of being right and having a reputation for having good judgment is is something that and, and one of the things I love about healthcare is precisely that the stakes are so high, that they're human life, that you're going to be known for the lives you save so that as much as ego might be at play, the stakes should be high enough that if, if they think, well, gee, if I disagree with Lisa, maybe I, what I'm afraid of is that I'm going to be wrong. Right. That can also be a double-edged sword because if, if people don't disagree when they should, then you also run into problems, right? So in the same way that a physician walked in the room and nobody questions them, you run into big problems. You know, I, I do, I think, I think what I mean is that I don't fear questioning when I go into a room and I'm taking care of a patient and I want to go a particular clinical course. If there's disagreement, I want there to be a discussion. It, it is in no one's interest for one provider to cave to another without discussion. You're sufficiently confident that you're, you're not worried about learning in plain sight. Right. That's absolutely a great thing to model. Yeah. I mean, one of the things about people who are afraid to learn in plain sight is they, they think they're not going to seem smart because they're learning in plain sight, but they don't realize that the people who know the most are the ones who are always learning. Oh, always. Yeah. So what about when, one of the things I'm interested in is I know that you, um, you and I share an interest in workplace culture mm -hmm. and, and you and I share an interest in workplace dynamics and, um, and, and you work in the kind of workplace I really am interested in, like a battlefield. It just, you know, the stakes are so high, you tend to find really best practices rise to the top in the, those environments. So how does your understanding of human behavior help you with your colleagues or with the, the I guess, people who are subordinates? So I... So my dissertation, like a million years ago now, looked at a model of, you know, the intersection of moral reasoning and clinical reasoning. And, and what I found sort of in the, all the research leading up to that and a lot of the work that comes out of that is that people are social animals, right? Nurses, providers, everybody is a social animal. And, and we want to belong and we want to fit in and we want to have good relationships at work. And where that becomes a problem um, in healthcare, specifically in emergency care environments, is when people work too hard to fit into the neglect of the patient situation. So, for example, I train new graduate nurses in the emergency department, and I will spend 16 weeks training the hell out of them. And they are crack clinicians. They are, you know, ready to be safe. They're ready to keep learning. And I go down six weeks later, and I walk past a room. 
and I see uh, a patient, uh, a chest pain patient who's not on a monitor. So I go to the nurse, who's one of my new grad students, and I say, hey, wh what's the story with this guy? Like, he should be on a monitor, he should have some oxygen, he should have a line, where is all that stuff we talked about? And she looks at me and says, well, the charger said that they were fine and not to worry about it and not to overreact. So for me, all of that clinical training was completely subordinate to this nurse's need to feel part of a social group. So I can know that that guy with chest pain really needs all these things. But if the physician or the charge nurse is like, ah, they're fine, then I don't, I don't want to look like one of those overreacting newbies who like panics at everything because that's what I'm not emergency people do. Emergency people are like, cool. And so that's a big piece of that. We just um, finished a validation uh, study of our theory of workplace bullying. Um, but basically what, what you have to have uh, in order for, for bullying to really take hold and, and have an impact on your workplace is a narrative that is about like toughening people up and hazing people and making them part of the group, right? If that dynamic, if that narrative doesn't exist, you don't have bullying to the, to the extent that you have it if it does exist. So what we see as part of that narrative is this idea of letting people sink or swim, which is so unbelievably dangerous in an emergency care you know, situation. Right. Um, and so rather than what we think of as bullying, this sort of uh, you know, berating people or being overtly mean to them, what we see in this situation, which makes it much harder to, to manage and identify, is a dynamic of uh, withdrawal, withholding. So I withhold from you my information, my expertise, my support. My understanding is that nursing has a has a reputation as a profession for having a real hazing culture mm -hmm. and you know somewhat similar to military culture um and i don't think it's an accident i think be because it's so such high stakes work right and there's something kind of help me understand that well okay so here's what i can tell you this is kind of a hot off the press kind of piece of information is that we sort of following this up, we were trying to figure out um, about secondary traumatic stress. And, and this, this actually speaks really well to your, your point with the military, um, is that when you are sort of subject to the, the tsunami of human pain and suffering every day as part of your job, you develop ways to kind of block it out so that you can continue to do your job. And some of the ways that people tend to do this, a very common way to do this is to, is to compartmentalize, right? Like I have to put that patient in a box so I can go see this patient. Now, the problem with that is the longer you do that, the, the, the less you are able to unpack each, all of that trauma. And I think that what happens is that a lot of that hazing, that toughening up part is a diminishing of the newer nurses trauma. So that's kind of, I think at the root, I have to do a little more work on this, but I think that can be at the root of that sort of dismissiveness, that, that, that toughen up kind of narrative. Um, and what that means is that we've got a whole bunch of traumatized people providing care to other traumatized people. Um, and so how do we reach across different um, disciplines to help, um, help manage this incredible level of secondary traumatic stress that is that has not just implications for the the nurses themselves, right? What what about you? I mean, 
I mean, you've seen some yes, I have. horrible things, right? Yep. And probably been subjected to um, all kinds of scary situations. Mm -hmm. But you have a sort of equanimity that is that because you know things that other people don't or is it are you having this secondary trauma also? I think the more that I'm aware of it, like what I used to do when I worked a lot more in the emergency department is, I mean, I run a lot. Uh, you know, I would run a lot. I would fence. There was, there was, you would like physically get that out. Um, so that, that's, a, I mean, that sort of physicality is really important. And uh, I think the more I teach and write about it, the, the more kind of, it's almost like being aware and being able to sort of unpack it on a daily basis is important. Um, it's hard because it, it, there's only so many times you can tell those stories to people who are not nurses. So I had a, a, a friend who lived halfway between the hospital and my house. And so I would leave a shift in the ER and I would go over to his house and he would hand me a beer and I would drink the beer and I would tell him about my night. Um, and then I would put my beer down and I would go home. Right. So I'd, I'd like vented. I didn't hurt anybody else in the process because he wasn't really listening. Um, and it was, it was super helpful, right? It was like this decompression chamber that I could just go from work there and then I could go home and be a person. So what does it look like when you're trying to uh, help your colleagues get better? Uh, this sort of continuous improvement is a big part of the discipline of healthcare right. delivery. You're always gathering evidence, so your decisions are evidence-based. Uh, but in a day-to-day -day tactical sense, when you're working with your colleagues, what does it look like, the, the after-action review process? There's, there also must be a level of appreciation and celebration when you get things right, and there must be a level of course correction and how are we going to do this better next time? Right. So I'm, I'm able to do that, fortunately, because I've got this sort of triangle going. I'm able to do it at a, at a national and international level because, you know, we're, we're doing this research and we're working on um, fixing sort of triage processes and bringing a new eye to what the triage process could entail, you know, and how to correct for things like implicit bias and how to um, really tr uh, treat it as the cognitive exercise that it is. Like this is this is a big thing with nursing. Nursing is kind of seen as this list of tasks, right? I hang the IV, I do this, I do that. Um, and, but actually, it's a series of assessments and the responses to those assessments. It is intellectual work. I think the hardest part, really, in correcting um, how people do triage is to frame it correctly, um, to explain to people what exactly they're doing so that they understand, like, this is more difficult than saying, ah, you look okay, ah, you don't look so okay. Um, and by doing that, it gives you an opportunity to really look at underlying assumptions, um, health disparities, populations that maybe emergency nurses don't know much about. So if I understand correctly, what you're saying is that, and this is one of the things you mean by your, the interdisciplinary nature of, of your approach to research, I, I, I'm, I'm realizing, I'm understanding better now. So for example, that emergency room, uh, emergency department clinician um, might have just expertise gaps when it comes to 
mm-hmm. of phenomena that relate to pregnancy that just realizing that that expertise gap is there allows you to prepare emergency department clinicians so that it's another uh, thing they can recognize. Right. What we see, especially in the psychiatric population, is only about 3% of people present to the emergency department with a complaint of suicidality. Um, 11% of people presenting to emergency departments will eventually disclose suicidality. So how do we identify those missing, you know, 8% of people that aren't being identified at triage? You know, there's a lot of situations where people don't necessarily disclose right away. And how do we equip people to be like, this could be a problem. Let's, let's look at that. You've mentioned triage and I, some people uh, know what triage is. Some people think they know what triage is. But 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 can you explain the triage process? Because I sure. think it's a it's also a beautiful metaphor for high stakes decision making. Right. But it's an actual thing you do. Right. It's a thing. Right. It's a thing that you do. And so I've been studying this for like fifteen years now. And basically, what the triage process is is when a patient presents for emergency care, if there is. Um, what some people do is if there's a bed available, they just find out what's wrong with you, they put you in a bed, and you get assessed and, and started treating. Where triage becomes really relevant is when you have um, uh, a lack of beds or, a, or a, your, your resources are, are fewer than the patients that are presenting. So what we have to do is kind of sort them into um, high acuity patients, medium acuity patients, and low acuity patients. So, um, so we, so most hospitals in the United States use a, a form of triage called the Emergency Severity Index, or ESI, and it's a one to five scale. Um, with uh, ones are people who need immediate life-saving interventions. Five are people who don't need any resources. Um, and where things become really challenging is is differentiating those middle three groups. Differentiating those middle three groups. So. Um, the, the understanding of uh, risk for decompensation. So if I leave you in the waiting room, are you likely to you know, have a, a, a degrading of your condition? So the, the idea is to look at stability, right? Physiologic and psychologic stability uh, as a criteria for do you come in or do you wait in the waiting room? Um, so frankly, you know, if you're waiting in the waiting room in an emergency department, that's good for you. It means you're not gonna die. Um, <laughs> And unless somebody's made a bad decision, unless someone's made a bad decision. Exactly. And so my, my life's work is to teach people to not make bad decisions in triage. So what does the process look like? How much information? It's really an intake memo that gets done, right? Mm -hmm. And or some kind of an intake uh, inquiry, right? Well, it's a very focused assessment, right? So let's say you come to me and you say, Hey, I'm here. I say, Hey, how can I help you? And you say, well, I'm having some chest pain. So what I have to think about is what do you look like, right? Um, are you pale? Are you sweating? Are you clutching your chest? Uh, are you nauseated? What's your history, right? So I'd ask you, do you have any history of heart problems? Do you take any medications? Um, I take a set of vital signs. And then I do an EKG, probably. So uh, it's, it's a, it's a, the, the better you are at it, sort of the sharper you're focused in, because you, need, you know what the data points you need are. Um, because what's the worst thing this could be? A dissecting aneurysm, a heart attack. Okay, what kind of questions can I ask you that might rule those things out just through questioning? Got it. And that's why you say the interdisciplinary knowledge can be so informative because it gives you a greater palette of 
options that you can be considering. But it sounds like also your emphasis on experience is that a catalog of cases you've seen and then seen how they've played out. Mm-hmm. So let me just ask you one and a half more things. Uh, so here's the one thing is I use your case study in, in the book to illustrate playing the long game by making really good decisions one moment at a time. And I thought mm-hmm. um, I was so excited about the opportunity to, to feature you because emergency medicine seems to me to be, you know, about as urgent moment by moment as it gets. Right. It's and zen, yet, zen um, medicine. <laughs> yeah. And then, and yet, you know, you've been around the block now long enough that you can say you've played the long game. And the reason why when you walk into the room, people are afraid they might be wrong if they disagree with you um, is because you've made so many good decisions in the moment that in the long game, you've got this reputation. Yeah, I, I think so. I've spent, uh, you know, and the thing was when I first went into critical care, like 20 years ago, I threw up every day. You know, I was so worried that I was going to make a mistake or, you know, and so I put all that energy into just reading everything all the time and asking all the questions. And um, and I think that's paid off really well, not just because it, it's given me a lot of clinical expertise um, and an openness to continue to keep learning, but it gives me a way to model that. For my students and my colleagues. Here's the 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 half question I have for you. Um, you are on the front lines. You are among those who are being recognized as heroes in this particular crisis uh, of the COVID nineteen crisis. You, but but I think people like you have been doing heroic work long before uh, you were in the headlines. Um, What's your advice to somebody starting out or in the middle of their career? What's your advice to somebody who's trying to navigate through times of crisis and uncertainty? Well, you know, I think it's really important to understand that, you know, there's sort of crisis, right, with a small C, which you see every day. Everybody's in crisis in an emergency room. Um, And then there's crisis with a capital C. And I think we're more in that right now, not because necessarily we're dealing with sicker people, um, but because there's kind of like an existential crisis in healthcare because what's been ripped away is this idea that it has anything to do with people and that has anything to do with patients. Um, When we look at hospitals that are functioning kind of on the razor's edge of profitability, it speaks to a, a healthcare system that is not focused on people, right? When we see the, the deficits, the health disparities, right? The racial disparity in access to care. Um, when we see how different communities of color are so much more vulnerable um, to pandemic-like conditions. Uh, and that's where I think a lot of, a lot of people are, are questioning their commitment to the system, not to the patients, but to the system that does not seem, I I think, I think there's going to be a huge issue in nursing. And we've been talking about this a lot at the national level is that people will leave because it's so clear that there is not a system in place to protect them. I think it's also really hard to look at how, um, 
how this has become just such a mess in terms of public health versus um, you know personal freedom. Uh, and I think that's really discouraging too. It's like, why are these physicians and nurses and all the other people who are working in, in medical, in medicine, like, why are we doing this if people are going to go out to a bar the second they get a chance, right? It's, I, there's a, I think there's a real crisis uh, that the, the sense that there's this broken pact, right? This broken contract between um, sort of federal agencies and people on the ground and our patients. You know, there's a, there's a lack of trust in all the way through that is going to take some time to repair. Um, but in terms of coping with that, you just put one foot in front of the other and you go in and you take care of your patients every day because that's your job. You go in, you do that, you do it as best you can. And then you go and do whatever you need to do to kind of clear that, right? You, you run, you talk to your friends, you get on the phone, you, you know, whatever you need to do. Well, Dr. Lisa Adams-Wolf, in my opinion, you are a true American hero and you uh, have always been and always will be uh, one of my favorite people and one of my best friends. And so God bless you and thank you for doing this. Hey, thanks so much. Next week, I will be interviewing Eric Hutcherson, who is the Chief Human Resources Officer at the National Basketball Association. If you like this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. Any little bit helps to drive us up the charts. You can also follow us on Twitter at goto underscore podcast. That's at goto underscore podcast. You can learn more about goto-ism and the techniques which make indispensable people stand out in their jobs and careers and lives in my new book, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, available now from Harvard Business Review Press, available wherever books are sold. If you're interested in bulk orders, please check the show notes for more information. And finally, you can learn more about our work at Rainmaker Thinking by visiting us at rainmakerthinking.com, by following me on Twitter at Bruce Tulgan, or find me on LinkedIn and Facebook at the links in the show notes. Until next time, stay strong and be indispensable at work.